0: I love these two pieces. I mean, with Mary and Martha, this idea that what to some is the most appropriate, accepted way to show love could be rejected by this transcendent figure in favor of this other expression of love. And then with Columbine and Rue, a very specific sort of love itself that echoes and responds to the love in the first piece. I'm Courtney Wright, and you are listening to NER Out Loud, the official podcast of the New England Review. As you just heard, I am pretty excited about today's episode. We'll be featuring two pieces today by Jesse Van Earden and John Freeman, read by two student actors, both looking at the various types and expressions of love. I also had the pleasure of catching up with Jesse and chatting about her piece, so after it's read, we'll hear a bit of that conversation before John Freeman's piece, Columbine and Rue, closes us out. A story of Mary and Martha taking in a foster girl was featured in The New England Review, Volume 40, Number 3. Jessie's work has also appeared in The Oxford American, River Teeth, Image, and More. She has published two novels, a collection of portrait essays, and her third novel, Call It Horses, just won the 2019 DeZanc Book Prize for Fiction. It will be released this coming March. Jessie is a West Virginia native and currently teaches creative writing at Hollands University. Jesse and I met up over Zoom a few weeks back to discuss a story of Mary and Martha taking in a foster girl. We talked about imaginatively interacting with biblical texts, genre hybridity, untraditional human relations, and lots more. But first, you of course want to hear this wonderful piece, and for that we have Francis Price. Francis is a junior English literature and theater a double major at Middlebury College. Originally from New Jersey, Francis is a part of Mids Theatre Scene and also has performed with Poetry Out Loud. And now, Francis Price reading Jesse Van Earden's A Story of Mary and Martha Taking in a Foster Girl.
1: I stand out here. In the blacker air, with the night bugs, in need of another story. My predicament is common enough, divorced and childless at forty, and now, in the wake of a lover having left for good, there is some bafflement, as in heart in my throat throbbing, the sense of possibility drained. Stuck and narrowed, I need to pull on the natty sweater, light the lantern, and write all night for love's possibility outside the givens. Because what is a story but a husk for another story within it? I remember the day we made the cake, says Mary to Martha in the kitchen. Mary finds Martha crying soundlessly and says, conciliatory, we made the cake out of nowhere for nothing. It was a lark. Martha skinny as a rail, Martha with her spreadsheets and to-do lists and steel wool shakes her head. No, no, no. I'm not capable of a lark. All I can do is prepare meat. Remember how you boiled the orange? pulped it with peel and pith and all, and we baked it into the dense chocolate with soppy whipping cream on top? It was soppy because you got sidetracked, Martha cries, and the white peaks didn't form properly in the bowl. The berry atop each slice was your idea, it wasn't even anyone's birthday. And you left the rest for the raccoons and crows, remember? Mary hugs her sister at the waist, and it's like hugging a fence post. All I mean is you made the cake for nothing. She opens her hands as if to say, your heart gives, your heart has some give to it. The original story Husk is in the gospel according to Luke chapter 10. In the last five verses, Jesus comes to the village of Bethany, Jesus who wanders with no itinerary or forewarning of a large party of guests. In the English standard translation of Luke's Greek, the story goes, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. about the sisters. Luke plows right into chapter 11, in which Jesus composes the Lord's Prayer on a hillside, and offers an analogy about the givingness of God. If a son asks for bread, will a father give a stone? If a son asks for an egg, will a father give a scorpion? He does not mention that it would be a woman showing up with bread and egg and meat and cutlery. And although Mary and Martha show up elsewhere in the Gospels, There's the business of their brother Lazarus being raised from the dead. No other gospel writer renders this version of the story of Christ's visit to Bethany. We don't know what happens next for the sisters in this scene. In Luke's account, Mary is free and open-hearted, sitting and drinking from the front of the Lord's words, refreshed. Martha is sweaty, harried, narrow, concerned with appearances and with making an impression, hospitable only transactionally, No one told her there'd be so many. She's nose down, powering through to make sure they all eat their fill. She must stay in control. So she is, ultimately, missing it. Martha the scold and the nag alone in her toil. Mary shirks the customary duty of women to serve, which I admire of course, but Christ and the men must eat. Someone must fill the glasses. So Martha inserts her gaunt face between the Lord and the seemingly idle Mary to say, in no easy-going mood, tell her to help me. Or, closer to the Greek, bid her take a hand along with me in the work. Martha, Martha, you are worried, upset. Careful, says one translation. And another, Martha, thou art bustled. The Greek suggests that he speaks it gently and with a touch of pity. It's strange he does not invite her and say, Martha, have a seat but speaks only a rebuke which traps her in her lonely role. Mary gets it and you, my dear, are a lost cause. But then a fissure, a gap. As is the style of the Gospel writers, Lucas is terse and leaves loose ends. I know though that Martha turns beet red and blusters back to the kitchen and Mary, with quite apology, hoists herself with great effort from the feet of the Lord and follows after her sister. Why did he have to say that? Martha says. And Mary, these dishes! The pile is enormous, the guests so many. Mary nods, tucks behind Martha's ear a piece of hair that is startled loose from her severe braid. They eventually do the dishes. He didn't have to say it with such pity, Martha mutters, steel wool to the pot. The dishes take a long time. They get into their nightdresses, exhausted. Mary studies the sky through the window, reads from her book of scientific wonders, aches sideways toward her sister wanting to help. Martha pretends to sleep. Martha aches for a new story. And the next day, to my astonishment, and you might not have expected this either, it is Martha out of her square heart who calls the number on the billboard pasted with five-foot faces of foster children. She chooses a love target and goes for it, willful and bullheaded as ever. But I appreciate her ingenuity, her attempt that will put her on a path. Because I need to know this is possible. The heart melt, the river shift, the life again. Maybe you do too. A new story forms inside the husk of the other. On the day the child comes, Mary makes a snowdrift. It makes sense to begin with Mary, for whom love comes easily. Well, not really a snowdrift, leaping goat-like and fat. Mary wears no overcoat, only a thin dress, so we can soon see it's not snow upon the bank of earth, but a pile of feathers. In their manyness they are snow, they are whipping cream on cake, they are the innards of a beautiful duvet, all for the child. Mary adds a fistful more that she found beside the killing cones outside the hen house, and from beneath the wind turbine in the radiator grill of a semi. Leap and squat, she peers close up at plumed vein, fastened to rochus that shifts like a sail's mast. Each vein closer up, comprising a thousand barbs, feathers within the feather, each with its own tiny shaft and tiny sprouting barbs. And at the bottom is the dizzying downy afterfeather, loose fuzz meant for bird warmth, not flight, a fine poof out from which pokes the hollow calamus, the quill that once met bird bone or bird skin. Afterfeather, Mary says for the sound having just finished the bird anatomy chapter in her book of scientific wonders. Flecks of red, she will explain our cardinal, or possibly tanager. There is the blue jays, the vultures, the plain swallows, the doves, though most are from the hens, a sawdusty white. Somewhere in the center, like a marble for the girl to find, Mary has buried one blue feather from an indigo bunting. She tried to show it to Martha, but Martha was a vortex of Pine Sol and Clorax readying the house. Mary will have the girl hold this blue feather up to the sun and will say, do you know this blue is not the blue you think it is? The bunting feather is gray in dull light, is not blue with pigment at all, but its blue comes from a structure of scales that reflect a blue wavelength of sunlight into the eyes. Mary moons over it, this gift to the gaze, this blue blaze. She reaches her fleshy arms around to keep the feathers fluttering a bit, as though fluffing a pillow. Of course, it's Martha fluffing the actual pillows and making the bed with hospital corners. She will teach the foster child to care for her teeth. Oh, Martha, I'll sinew and stick arms, having made a study of tactical movements between kitcher, counter, and stove, and nervous. My goodness, she's nervous. But it's true, it was Martha who called the toll-free number on the billboard. The billboard said, above the huge faces of the children, Be a hero in the story. Which struck Martha's mind like a two-by-four. The women on the other end of the line said parents are locked up and strung out. We have too many to handle. There's a young girl of twelve. Her name is Maud, could you take her? And Mary, overhearing, brimmed over and placed her hands at her own open face like two palm leaves. And Martha said, yes, of course. And Mary did a little topley dance and mouth, I'm proud of you. While Martha pinched the receiver between ear and shoulder and wrote down the details. And now young Maud comes this afternoon and Martha practices her instructions in a way that endears her to me. Here's your bed. Here's a corner of wool turned down. Here's your window open to the sound of the night bugs. Here's your bed. Here's a corner of wool. Here is Maud in the sister's doorway, a lean, wide-eyed thing, hair red like a Brillo pad with a few loose coils gone straight. She appears in a too-big boxy dress that would not be so boxy if she were not so stricken. Her collarbones jump in alarm from her skin. The caseworker carries a paper grocery bag of Maud's things, both bag and girl looking rescued from a fire. At the door, Mary rotund and dressed in her finest bows as deeply as she is able and produces a chrysanthemum and an agate and a single swallow feather and cannot speak. Are you hungry? You must be hungry, says Martha. The caseworker says, go on now. And Maude takes slow, tentative steps toward the kitchen, following Martha, who has already turned and marched off as though fleeing or running late. Mary produces another feather for the caseworker and says, I think a bush tit but it's hard to tell this tiny. In the gallery of religious art from the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, the painters tell the story of Christ in the house of Mary and Martha. And though the era changes, the clothing and the degree of poofiness of their dresses, it's always the same dramatization meant to edify by contrast. Vermeer is all color, of course. His Jesus in a rich navy robe gestures toward Mary and her spot at his feet her chin on her fist in soft shadow. But his face is exasperated, turned up toward Martha, who is pale. And in brighter lighting, that removes the secret self. Martha saying, but. But she holds the beautiful bread. She stands, she is ever standing. Tintoretto's Martha directly chastises Mary in her huge froth of dress on the floor. Martha's eyes glaring downward, Jesus at the table spilling forth his gentle words of life with disregard for the dishes and seemingly for the spat. Overbeck paints Martha with one hand on her hip, pointing to Mary like a tattletale, but Jesus wagging his finger to admonish. The Mary is more schoolgirl with a moony crush than contemplative. And his rosy-robed Jesus gestures again to Martha with her full tray of empty glasses and flask. Why do you keep missing it? Always Martha is run off her feet, playing the martyr. She fritters away her time on the worldly and the mundane, no deeper glow to her face. This didactic depiction goes all the way up through time to a 90s cartoonish cover of an evangelical bible study workbook. Martha, all school marmy, Mary, beatific, a sort of hippie possessed of a smoky intimacy with God. Don't be a Martha, Is the title of an eight week study for the harried single mothers and women in shoulder padded suits trying to de stress. Don't be a clod. Be all heart. Be all open mouth. Forget about what's on the stove and in the appointment book and on the spreadsheets. The women gather in metal folding chairs in church basements with the workbooks in their laps, the back of their minds ticking with kids' lunches, PowerPoint slides due tomorrow, and who will organize the potluck? Resentful nodding, resentful. The Mary and Martha duality somehow just shores up their martha not what they'd been hoping for. Of course I have taken notes in such studies, balancing the workbook on my lap. Of course I am familiar with that resentment and know my way around a spreadsheet. Of course I see myself in the controlling, controlled Martha. The first lines on the skin of my 40-year-old face etched my forehead in consternation. Of course that's why I'm doing this, old sweater pulled close, lantern lit, asking, what if this is not the story you think it is? What would I paint given the chance? The thing more secret there in the crevice within Martha's self, the intimation, the melting, the breaking forth. Why retread and limb in gold and fuchsia the already known? For Maud's welcome, Martha has made banana bread with lemon and walnuts. She already has a slice on each of three plates, and the butter has been set out to soften. She stands at attention while Maud and Mary sit at the table. Mary rocks from side to side, her thoughts drifting, dust motes in the bright rays of Maud, a girl untethered and flockless. Martha, worked up to invisible stiff peaks, does not move. Maud eats two slices. That night, Martha spends a great deal of time on flossing, its importance and proper technique, and Mary says at the bathroom door, I have a surprise for the morning. All in their night clothes then, Martha says, as rehearsed, here is your bed, here is a corner of wool turned down, here is your window open, but her voice catches. Mary notices. Oh Martha, this will take time. Martha clears her throat. The three of them look out to the air, fresh and black and full. Here is your window open to the stars, Martha finishes. To the stars, whispers Mary. The next morning, Martha's face flushes over sausage and egg preparations. And beside the sink, Mary says, won't you come and see? But Martha says, be quick. So the food is hot. She needs her food hot. So Mary slips out with Maud alone leads her by the hand to the surprise heap of feathers out back on the bank, only a little snowmelt, that is, the wind has scattered a few, but not many, and Maud spreads her hand into a palm leaf and runs it through the pile, up and out. Mary helps her seek the blue one, the indigo bunting tail feather, and when the girl holds it to the sun, Mary tells her about the blue wavelength, memorized from the Book of Scientific Wonders. Cross ribs on the scales diffract the light to iridescence such that you see something imminent in light that you did not see before. You see reality differently, in all its possibility. And it's how the birds speak, says Mary, in the language of iridescence. She takes the feather and slides it behind Maude's ear, like a pencil, and it's easily held in place by her great nest of red hair. Listen to the language, says Mary. She fluffs the rest. The feathers float up and drift. She shows Maud close up the fine puff at the base of one, at the hollow calamus. After feather, Mary says. After feather, says Maud. A few times in that first week, Maud takes Martha's hand, but the tall, stern woman is uncomfortable with that and makes for the kitchen, Mary looking on knowing her sister must find her own way within her own skeletal structure and unfatty flesh. In the meantime, Mary tells the girl unproductive stories with no arc, teaches her to pray ineffectual prayers, to draw non figurative doodles. And Martha tells the girl how it is from here to there, how to hem her slip, bind her slip in the first place, unlike Mary whose stout legs are always visible through her sheer skirt that catches in the bicycle chain. One night, Maud takes sick. Martha smears Vick's Vapor Rub on the croupy chest and stands sentinel while Mary comes besides with her doodle. She draws with black pen, some pastels and pencils. No need for discernible faces, Mary says to the girl. And she never finishes since they are not finishable, only starts a new one on a scrap, a fury of orange colored pencil and green. Maud wheezes her admiration at this fourth one held before her. Looks like... But she can't settle on a comparison, and Mary shrugs, says, just is, no likeness. Martha heads for the door, says, remember to sleep. I'll fetch the vaporizer, did you floss? The next night, Maud sits up in bed, and Mary sits splayed on the floor, making blessing books. It's soon spring, so I want to write blessings, Mary says. She has written them out, Xeroxed them, cut them to size, and now she staples the center to make many booklets. See? I have doodled a little something in the corner of each. When you're better, Snufflepup, you can come with me to throw these from the car window to the side of the road among the yellow Coltsfoot blooms, and we'll get Martha to come. Maud looks doubtful. She'll come, says Mary. She will. As if my mind were still growing, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote in his journal once, and I copied into mine once, it is the way the perfectionist, the workhorse, tries to change, to will herself toward growth. Raised up in the pew, hearing Martha's story, did I not always think, as she toiled, how unfair? Think, she is so alone. Think, when the breeze blows, it does not move a hair on her head. When the day forms she already has it in her grasp like a woman seizing a chicken by the neck for slaughter she does not know thirst or the quenching of it deep in her body's recesses even as a young girl did i not blink worryingly at the specter of martha how familiar her movements were to me her way and does not another failure at love give me cause tonight for data assessment analysis of the spreadsheet such that the old failures feel potent only a few columns away The recent lovers leaving only conjures, like some hologram, the once-husband, the once-love of my life, standing on our doorway. Years ago now, but tonight all the same, saying to me, you have an old hatred in you. His blue eyes startling, my bleary eyes bloodshot, my whole self exacting, in control, unbroken into, my lists and accomplishments, a bulwark around my missing it. This was his rebuke, his, thou art bustled. And was there not a trace of pity in his voice? An old hatred for what? I don't know. For myself, I guess. My error and ineptitude, my own failure and vulnerability, his. No doubt he regrets saying such a thing. It is a cruel thing to say to someone, but wasn't there a kernel of truth in it? That we can be heir to a kind of hateful shutting out of the world that for some of us love and lark do not come easily when he left it was the only story i believed for a while you cannot sustain love you cannot possibly raise a child you i unlearned it eventually yes that it was not my entirety but our old stories our old roles can come back and haunt us here in the blacker air In the fresh wake of someone else leaving, how could the old story not catch me again in its grip? But what I am trying to say here is that within the tired, narrow husk of the old story, it is possible for the heart to shift. Though it cannot be willed, it is possible in time for a thing strange and new to emerge. They tell Maude together about her period when it comes. Mary, with the gift of silk scarf and a kingfisher feather, and Martha, with gravity and a voice of decorum and dust, grave but also comprehensive anatomically. Despite Mary's study of science in this matter, she says, "There's the pull of the moon and waves—a swish in there. Our little pair, how the green blushes pink." Maude receives the tampons and pads and scarf and feather into her lap. These threads in you unspooling, says Mary. Months become years. The years pass. It snows real snow. Maud says nothing ever of mother or father or hearth or native land. The sisters keep her. The caseworker simply falls out of touch. Martha thinks often of that first night before the open window, looks upon the three of them in nightclothes, with young Maud in the middle, as if from the ceiling, and how unyoked they were and are how mysterious the child remains to her, how mysterious the mechanisms of intimacy. Yet it occurs to her one afternoon, it occurs to her quite suddenly as she applies a toothbrush to the stained caulking around the bathroom sink fixtures and she drops the toothbrush and raises up to see her angular face and her hair pulled back in the mirror with one strand falling free, a thin ringlet. There are a thousand arrows that have pierced me. Her eyes water and sting. She does not name herself a mother exactly, even a foster mother. She thinks, I am unnamed the way Mary's ridiculous doodles are unlike anything. This movement of her inner waters direction, the river shift, the pierce, she has not felt this before. When Maude is 19, she gets her heart broken for the first time. She calls out for Mary through the house hallways, wants Mary to enfold her, but Mary is out. Martha is all there is. Maud falls into bed, unable to get up. Well, what to do? Unlike Mary, Martha believes in effectual prayer, and she thinks, "Prayer like a body folding around you." Martha, so clearly edged, and skin with nothing to spare, to Maud's great surprise, pulls back the corner of wool and lies down with Maud at her back. Martha folds her body like an awkward stiff reed smelling of bread dough and parsley around the bereft girl. Martha becomes all eaves, all shelter. Maud is surprised out of her tears, not least of all because Martha has never lain fetal in daylight, not once. This is a way to pray, says Martha, matter of fact. Think of the results how if you have hypothermia and we spoon skin to skin, I can keep your blood hot enough to flow through your heart. Also, if there's a grenade and I fold my body around it and take the force to blow apart my innards, I could save you. It's practical, really. Then she stops talking and holds the shivery Maud on speaking. The next night, you need to wash your hair, Maud says Martha. There are caterpillars in it. Mary put them there, Maud says, barely audible. "Maud, the 19-year-old with her loud, broken heart drowning out her voice. Martha tramps to Mary's room for explanation, says the caterpillars are strange and red-brown with yellow patches and they're hairy. What are you thinking? I'm thinking she's sad, says Mary, and I think her hair will be safest for the pupil stage, so she will eventually get to see what they become. Martha is exasperated, and what will she see exactly? And Mary too is exasperated in her gentle way, because it's the blue morpho butterfly she's trying to hatch. She says, a blue morpho, imagine one of the biggest in the world, it's in my book, eight inches of blue wingspan that is not blue the way you think it is, but structured scales diffract the light so that it's simply the bluest blaze, like some feathers have, I want her to see. They're in Maud's hair. This will not help her, says Martha, her eyes tired, her voice unconvincing. I want her to see and to hear the language of iridescence. Will it help? asks Martha. I want you to see, whispers Mary. I see, whispers Martha. Oh, whispers Maud with the caterpillars in residence. The next night, I once survived a hurricane, Mary says to Maude's door because of the heartbroken girl's self-imposed internment, the secreted away pupae notwithstanding. Mary says, I once survived being thrown by a horse, also a famine, I ate beetles. Maud says nothing. You will survive this kiss, and the kiss is gone-ness. Palm leaf hands to her own fleshy face. Mary closes her eyes and says, you are in the left place. He is gone, but the left, unchosen place is cool and feel and moisture. I can see your thoughts gathering after his odd beauty like dry leaves in a passing car's wind. But where you are, outside love for a time, how shadowed is that place in the cool where the lamb might lie in the heat of day? Maud cracks the door. Then, after a moment, Opens it wider, her face a reddened wreck. But here, Mud says, is where the arrow went. See? And here the kiss and the after smoke. Oh, snuffle pup and bandit. Mary strokes the girl's hair, sort of. It's more like padding a box hedge. Oh, stranger, native to nowhere. Mary closes her eyes again have to pat you gently to know you blind. I have to learn you. There is so much to you. Martha shows up, her hair unusually tousled to make a trio of standers in the doorway in a clutch. Martha, also with eyes closed, all their eyes closed. Martha puts her hand out too, to pat Maud blind, to feel unbelievably close to the girl's roughed up heart. Because none of them have ended up where they meant to end up, have they? Hands move from wrist to collarbone, to forehead to mouth. Love moves from need to need to need. From yes to broken up yes. After kiss, says Maud. After arrow, says Mary. After all, says Martha. I don't know exactly how the story ends the following morning, except that, snuffing out my lantern, going back outside in the almost dawn, I hug the old yellow sweater to myself, but then peel it off, just a tank top and cool air, and I feel the breeze move across Martha's face like a kiss. It is early. Maud prepares to leave, to go out on her own with her stowaway caterpillars, her pristine teeth, her hem slip and favorite doodles, but she and Mary cannot find Martha. It's Mary who's left to fuss over the luggage and the sandwiches, Martha nowhere to be found, until Maud thinks to look out back on the bank of earth where there is that first pile. Maud is not sure why she does not look in the cellar, in the pantry, at the wash line, but she doesn't. Mary follows, and there they find Martha, stooped like a bent willow, and lightly rising as she gathers a fresh heap. Mostly from the sawdusty hen house beds mostly white, such that you might think snow, except this is summer, and Martha's dress is thin, and these are feathers, and the feathers are for the girl who has come, and the feathers are for you and for me. And Martha reaches to the center of the pile and unbends and unwinds herself and turns her face so softly toward Maud, For from the center of the pile she has pulled the rare indigo bunting tail feather. It is so blue unto all the light's possibility. A thing magnificent offered for nothing.
0: And now, Jesse Van Earden. Jesse, thank you for being here.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah. So could you tell us where in the world uh, are you right now?
2: Well, right now I am at my desk in my home study in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, not on campus teaching at Holland today. So I have a day to kind of regroup, do some things from home.
0: So could you tell us a little bit about how writing sort of entered your life and then eventually how biblical stories uh, entered into it as well?
2: Yeah, I guess... Um, Writing entered my life pretty young. I was, you know, seven or eight and liked to write short poems and kept journals and always um, was always writing letters. So language was a big part of my life as a child. And I think probably biblical interest coincided pretty young as well. I grew up in a really small, uh rural Appalachian church, and that was a big, big part of my family life was youngest of four kids and a big part of my community life. So hearing the biblical text and sort of having it in my imagination really young probably infused my writing. Um, It wasn't particularly subject matter I talked about a lot as I went through. um, I wrote some plays and then I wrote poetry and then kind of settled into the world of creative nonfiction pretty late in my college years. Um, which is what I eventually got my MFA in, so that was that kind of became my home. The essay, mm. um, and I think probably the subject matter of um, of more sort of overtly esoteric characters probably started even after my graduate study.
0: So for our listeners, Jesse sent me this very very lovely article on a Jewish tradition of
2: midrash.
0: Was that like in your vocabulary at this point?
2: I think did they send you the Marjorie Sander ram in the thicket? Yes, they did. Know. Yeah, I mean that's that's an interesting kind of intermediary space. So that that came out in the Writer's Chronicle, um, which is a writing a creative writing journal. It has a lot of great craft stuff, and and Sander's article is sort of talking about the tradition of midrash and really how it can inspire creative writers. So the the tradition of midrash is a sacred tradition and. In, in the Jewish tradition of rabbis interpreting texts, oftentimes with um, stories and filling in gaps that might exist in the biblical text. So that's a, a sacred tradition. It's something that I revere very highly. And I'm an amateur and starting to sort of study and read. So I, so I don't practice midrash myself, but feel an impulse and an inspiration mm. from that practice into a way of... <laughs> Interacting with biblical text more imaginatively. I think a big focus of it for me is to realize the strangeness that is there, that is inherent in texts that have become, for some of us, so familiar that they seem kind of closed and not um, not full of really any surprises. And they're often used for didactic purposes, for mm. behavior, moralistic um, teaching. And there's so much more interest i think in engaging more imaginatively and I'm thinking what are the silences and the shadows in these stories that what are the possibilities that are there so when you talk about like sort of
0: the familiarity was the mary and martha story or i don't know if you could even call it that because it's not given a lot of space in the biblical text was that something that you grew up with a familiarity with
2: yeah it was definitely familiar i mean some of the essays um that the listeners will have just heard from francis's reading was you know i I worked in some of that familiarity into the text itself with not only um my personal experience kind of growing up with this this dichotomy between sort of mary who is kind of the goal and martha who's sort of the, the overworking you know um, distracted person, um, so I kind of gave a sense of that that weir- weariness of how it's a it's a teaching edification by contrast. I think is the phrasing I use. Mm. Where um, you know the two women are they're not really interesting characters in the way they're they're sometimes taught. They're more like two different options for ways to approach God um, mm-hmm. and and I try to give a sense to of a really long engagement with, you know, with art and lots of different cultural interpretation. It has a lot of layers that has sort of a cultural familiarity. And then it has a personal familiarity I Me mean, to me, just kind of growing up with that story and, and kind of always thinking that I felt more like Martha and feeling more mm. like the person with the to-do list and the planner and the, um, the, the work ethic and, and always felt quite miss, around someone like Mary. Mm. Um, but I think I wanted to allow them to be characters on the page that are a little bit beyond their category of how they're seen in, um, in, the, in the wider tradition so that, and particularly how they could in, encounter a fictive character of the foster girl of Maud as someone who's not in the text at all, but, but what if she were?
0: yeah so i'm thinking like we if we have mary and martha as this binary like feminine archetypes like what did it mean for you to then create mod bring mod into that
2: well i think i probably uh, the greatest question i think i probably wanted to explore was how how both of these women like anyone just have things to learn about love and so and the character of the foster child. I was just talking to a class that I read this essay the other day and they were talking about like like why a foster child and mm-hmm. and I think that part of that has to do with larger questions of um I'm I'm kind of interested in human relations that are outside of um what someone has called like the old citizenships. <laughs> so mm-hmm. not necessarily like one's child in a nuclear family, but what are the what are the bonds and kins people that we have that are outside of that. And foster children um, have been on my mind And maybe because when I was writing this essay in particular, I was living in West Virginia where the opioid crisis was really rearing its ugly head. And a lot, there were really signs everywhere of of asking for people to to volunteer to be foster parents because a lot of parents weren't able to parent their children. So it was kind of in my psyche a lot in, in terms of region I was living and thinking about just what it means what would it mean to be a foster child? So I think that's probably why um, I sort of wanted to focus on someone that wasn't their kin or their blood or their responsibility, but some kind of other attachment could grow there um, and give them questions about you know how to love them. I think Mary also um, you know, I kind of plumped her up and then she sort of gave her festival. <laughs> character, but I also wanted a great tenderness. It's not just Maude, but it's also their love for one another, um, between Mary and Martha and a kind of way in which they grow tired of each other, but also love each other and challenge one another. And that, that interaction between Mary and Martha is is really absent from the biblical text. It's kind of like Martha saying, you know, to Christ, tell tell Mary to assist me essentially. Right. Um, <laughs> And there are other places where those women appear in the gospel text, but in that, that particular story, generally, it's, it's kind of a complaint, you know, and so, so there's no suggestion of really what their relationship might be like outside of that moment. And I wanted to explore that. Yeah. So
0: looking at kind of the um, the more like nonfiction memoir um, aspect of the story, I guess, would you consider it a memoir? And then what was that decision like to, to integrate true moments of your life into this deeply traditional historical piece? You talk a lot about like what it means to write a new story. And so I think it's really interesting that in writing a new story, you still chose to sort of return to the old,
2: to the historical, to the traditional. hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I'm really interested in genre hybridity. So, you know, I'm trained as an essayist and I have a lot of love for the essay form um, and the way it can allow us to ask questions and break free from necessarily just the same kind of narrative pressure. I'm not a memoirist, I would, I would say. like I. I pull from life experience more in service to questions I'm asking in, in more of an essay form. So I don't do a lot of, um, narrative shaping around my own experience all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm usually exploring some kind of subject and, um, sometimes a slice of my, my, own experience in this, in this particular case I'm a recent breakup. So. <laughs> Um, so this, you know, this, I was writing this around the time when I had a breakup and, um, you know, there are always different ways to, to deal with heart, heartbreak and heartache. And so that frames the, the essay in terms of my own personal experience and kind of a, a push towards, um, there's kind of two, maybe two, um, reimagining happening here there's the one that's engaging with the the ancient text and finding kind of going to that source for some kind of answer but also the way recent losses trigger memories of former losses so there's also a Mm. kind of reckoning with the self and realizing like I've been divorced for several years, but how breakups can kind of reverberate back into other failed relationships. And so Mm. there's that kind of reckoning kind of going on and and how to somehow lean up into this narrative of these two women and dealing with with a foster child. So they're not dealing with romantic relationships. It's not a one to one correlation of my story and their story. Mm-hmm. But, but both of them have at the center the question of the nature of, of love and also the sort of myth of scarcity and, um, model of abundance, you know, kind of thinking about Mary and Martha both. Um, you know, Mary has an extravagance of, about her and kind of like, uh, she's not utilitarian. And there's something about Martha that has, it's as tender a love that she grows toward but it's not manifested in a, in a similar way. But I think her movement toward extravagance toward the end and the imagery of the feathers, which is of course a kind of image that doesn't have as much use or weight or, you know, kind of purposefulness, like making a cake or making some dinner or flossing the teeth, you know, other images that you associate with Marshmallow throughout. Yeah. Um, and so there's something about the movement toward so the, the sort of softening toward herself and toward Maude um, in a kind of deeper self understanding. So it it, so it kind of follows an arc of the of the personal narrative. Um, that, that so it kind of creates energy with the, the biblical text and that kind of biblical excavation. of where does it meet my own experience, my own current set of questions.
0: I find that so interesting. And I wasn't really familiar with this story before with these, um, just these two, the word I keep coming back to is archetypes of like the, the wonderer, the more like lofty believer, and then the more practical person. What, what drew you to those two types of people, I guess?
2: Well, I think you're right. They're there female archetypes and they're, you know, there's, there's how they exist in the biblical text, and there's how they've been used. You know, all all mm-hmm. kinds of sacred texts have have been wielded for for purposes, um, but often very dangerous or violent purposes. But there's something about, um, you know, female experience that's, of course, very interesting to me with these women. And the class I talked to the other day uh, translated the original Greek. Um, and, to, and they were kind of saying, you know, we just read that story. And there's no food at all. There's no preparation of food. <laughs> <And> <laughs> like, why? Why is Martha always making stuff? Why is she always? And I was like, well, partly that's the the, the sort of you know the the gender um, training that that I got as, as a child of, of what um, of of, ha- of how you love, how you run a home, you know, in a pretty pretty traditional upbringing. So. I think in terms of female experience it's interesting to me I think they were interesting to me as um as a pair um because they're also just you know parts of the self and so they're they kind of represent different parts of one's own consciousness I'm typically pulled towards you know specific biblical characters because there's some kind of um current some kind of electric current that's running between my experience at the moment and theirs I mean right now I've kind of an essay about Moses, which really surprised me, mainly because I focus a lot on female characters but they're mm-hmm. the more silenced ones typically in a text. But and and gosh, Moses gets a lot of airtime. But there's this <laughs> one scene um, where, and it's an uh, Exodus where um, it's it's pretty well known. But when when Moses says to God, please show me your face. You show me your glory. And God says, you know, you can't really bear my face. I will hide you in this cave and I will pass by and you can see my back. Um, and of course, right now <laughs> the image of the face and masking is, doing mm. is so interesting to us. And, um, and also a lot of, um, I'm interested in a lot in uh, Emmanuel Levinas, a Jewish philosopher and how he talks about the face as kind of the, the sight of the word of God mm. and the the call upon upon us to not harm one another, and here we are in a in a time of um, of great harm upon fellow citizens.
0: Yeah. So in the um, let's see the Marjorie Sandor piece, and thank you for clarifying by the way that what you have done is not actually the practice of midrash itself, but is a, an impulse towards that. I think that's an important clarification. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, she mentioned um, the sort of like self midrash that is sort of like meta as your writing pieces like these also noticing what you're compelled to and why. And I'm wondering if that was, um, if there was another layer a sort of meta layer to your writing of this piece.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I think there's often, especially with the essay writing, a lot of, I think often a meta layer, kind <laughs> <laughs> like, like a, a lot of, it's a real seeking kind of literary tradition, I think. I mean, even essay is a, the root word of it is to to try, to test, to test mm. uh, to test metal. Um and it, and the word midrash comes from the Hebrew verb darash and Sandra talks about that really beautifully in her article, that it means to seek or to inquire. And it also has a, a physical uh, meaning to tread a place, to walk in a place, you know, to dwell. And I think um, all of those activities feel really relevant to me um, in looking at the text, but also in, like, she really opens it up. You can derosh kind of anything. It's more of a posture than it is a specific subject matter, you know, that it's more about paying attention to what are the gaps and silences in historical documents in iconic paintings, you know, in other myths. I just recently had my nonfiction class read Sanders, Sanders' essay, along with um, the beautiful opening pages of Lena Cabeza Venegas' um, collection of essays, Don't Come Back, which is uh, kind of details her own um, immigration story from Colombia, but also retells Colombian myths as kind of a um, a, section, a section for each part of the book. Um, so we read sort of the personal essays along with these translated myths from Colombian mythology, and I think um, there was this beautiful interaction between you know what what the nature of these kind of founding myths of our identity, of our culture, of our foundational ways of seeing the world. Like they're they're still with us, you know. They're, they, I mean, those things. My practice of spirituality has really evolved over my life. But what happens, I think, in those early years of coming into language and coming into understanding of how you relate to the larger world and coming into texts that have some kind of extra underlining to them, you know, extra kind of sacred value. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in how you learn them, I mean, there's something I think really interesting there about an evolving relationship. That you know, a lot of people just kind of close the book. I think, particularly if they, you know, grew up fundamentalist like I did, and then, have kind of go away from it once they go to graduate school and get their degrees and I kind of close that chapter. <laughs> um, and I've just never been interested in that kind of processing of of that experience. Number one, because I I still count myself a believer at least in the way I define it, but also because I think it would be like tearing a lot of the fabric of of my psyche and who I am as a self and how my familial relationships were formed. So, so it, it seems a lot more connected to me. And so it seems just as present as it did when I was eight and I was writing little notes on the book of Revelation in my little kitten diary. <laughs> That's
0: a lovely image there. I just have a, f- a few more questions for you. Um, so... Hearing uh, Francis read your piece, I'm so interested in what that was like for you because I'm just sort of dipping my toe into this literary world, but it's my understanding that that isn't a a super common practice of hearing um, sort of an out loud version in somebody else's voice. Um, I think typically authors read their own pieces themselves at readings. I picked a a male intentionally with a deeper voice intentionally. So I'm curious what that was like. Um, If anything, yeah, it came up that uh, you thought was interesting or maybe wasn't interesting at all. And that's okay too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I thought, It's interesting because I do feel like, Mm. you know, there's this weird tradition where writers go out and read their work and most of are introverted and would prefer not to do such a thing. Mm. Um, unless, you know, you know, there is an, there is an oral quality to the work and there's a musicality to the prose or the poetry. So there, there, there is something special about. Vocalizing it, but I do feel like it's it's not natural to a lot of writers because we're more private people. It's a good experience overall; it's kind of fun. Here' someone, you know, having someone read with a care or shows attention mm. your work. It's a different kind of connection that you have with a reader, so that that, that has a, a unique pleasure to it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you Courtney. Thank you for a good question. I appreciate it.
0: And now, Namaia Lamal, reading John Freeman's
3: Columbine and Rue. We knew she'd loved, been loved, by how she taught Shakespeare. The anguish of regret staining her voice when Henry turns his back on Falstaff, denies a love untidy. She saw in us these untidinesses, loved us for them. That's not too strong a word, is it, for how a teacher tends the statuaries she places in students' minds? Thick is the green, there with longing and fury, little pebbled by regret or patience. What tenderness it takes to plant, such a lot of raking, weeding, a respect for the ground itself, And yet she showed us a love that didn't ravage equally was not love. It could make you weep before a room of teenagers caged in self-mockery. She dared us to feel, even for her, how old she seemed. Scarves in springtime, pilgrimages to ravello in summer, eyes misty every fall by the spectacle of our unzippering before her, beloved bard. Etched onto our skins now, a passionate kiss.
0: That was Columbine and Root, written by John Freeman and published in NER Volume 41, Number 1. It also appears in his second poetry collection, The Park, published this fall by Copper Canyon Press. John's writing has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, the Los Angeles Times, the Guardian, the Wall Street Journal, and many more. He can be found on Twitter at Freeman Reads. Columbine and Rue was read by Namaya Lamont. Namaya is a senior comparative literature major at Middlebury College, focusing in German and English. She has done voice acting work for plays, performance poetry, and most recently LibriVox, where she volunteers to read audiobooks in the public domain. She's also an avid fan of NER and calls the woods of Vermont home. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. All other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was edited and produced by me, Courtney Wright, Middlebury class of 2021.5. Thank you to writers Jesse Van Earden and John Freeman, to Gary Savoy at WRMC, the Middlebury College radio station, for engineering the readings, to our readers, Francis Price and Amaya Lamal, and to NER editor Carolyn Keebler. If you want to learn more about the writing you heard today, head to our website, nereview.com, where you can find author interviews, events, and more. If you have a favorite piece from the magazine you would like to hear read aloud, email us at nereview at middlebury.edu. And if you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to NER Out Loud on Apple Podcasts. That helps others find the show. From NER Out Loud, I'm Courtney Wright.